And my friend Jake and I decided that we would road trip all the way up to New Hampshire together. We would drive through the Northeast and we saw Niagara Falls and we saw different sites and attractions on our way up through there. And when we got to the Northeast, we realized something, and that is that we were not made for New England. Jake is about my size, and he's maybe a little shorter, but he's a very strong guy. And New England was built differently. All the houses were shorter, and they were smaller, and kind of scrunched in. Nothing was flat. Everything was in mountains and through curves and valleys and things. The people were a little shorter up there. They talked a little bit different than we did. And when we got out of the car um, to meet the rest of her family, they were amazed. They thought they were seeing giants because there were all these tall guys that were getting out of the car. And they said, what do you feed those guys in Illinois and Iowa? And we said, corn. And so they were shocked at how big we were. And, you know, I enjoyed the Northeast a lot, and I enjoyed being up there. It was really pretty, all the sights and scenery and mountains that we drove through. But it was not home. I felt out of place there. I felt like I didn't fit in. I felt like I didn't really belong. So it was great for a vacation, but I thought, I don't think I could really live up here. Um, It's not quite what I'm used to. C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. I love that quote. In our two verses this morning, we examine how we can live in the world around us. As we've looked at the book of Titus, we've talked about what it means to be a healthy church. We've really looked at what does it mean to live in community with one another? How should older men act? How should older women act? How should younger men act, younger women? And how do we interact with one another in the church? And that's important. We spent time talking about that. As Paul transitions us into chapter 3 of the book, he shows us how we can live in the world. He shows us how we can interact with those around us, different believers around us. And because it's daylight savings and we're all a little tired, I decided I would only preach on two verses today, verses 1 and 2. But I have six points, so... Somewhere that's going to even itself out. But friends, in these two verses, there, is, there are a lot of commands and a lot of examples for us to follow and how we can live in the world doing good works. We know that as believers, we are made for a different world. We're made for a different country. If you know Christ, you should feel more and more out of touch with the world. You should be more and more different. The desires of the world, the things the world can give you, should satisfy you less and less. The longer we are saved, the more we realize that this world does not give us joy. The longer we're saved, the more funerals we attend, the more loved ones we lose, the more suffering we experience in this life. It reminds us that this world is not the end-all, be-all. That is, we look forward to a day when we're joined with Christ that we long to experience eternity, to experience knowing Christ and being with him in heaven. But God does not just take us home right when, we're, when we become Christians. After you were saved, he didn't just rapture you up to heaven, but he left us here on the earth and he left us here for 
a reason. So how do we interact with the world as believers? How do we interact with other people who believe differently than us, who think differently, who do not know God? Paul gives us these instructions in the first two verses of Titus chapter 3. And I think he wants us to understand this. He wants us to remember our attitude as we live in the world. You should remember your attitude as you live in the world. The world should see us as different, especially as we consider our attitudes. So as we consider our attitudes this morning, how would Paul, how would God have us act? And I think there's six ways. First of all, I believe that God would have us have a submissive attitude. A submissive attitude. Notice verse 1 with me. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, if you were here last week, we know that the last verse of chapter 2 is Paul giving commands to Titus. After he explains the wonderful grace of God that saves us, that trains us, that promises us eternal life with him, he gives Titus these commands. He says, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus, don't let anyone stop you from proclaiming this message, from teaching people these things. Well, really the first word of chapter 3, the first word of verse 1 in chapter 3 is joined with that. So as Titus is speaking, as Titus is rebuking, as Titus is teaching these things to the people on the island of Crete, he says, remind them. There's things that Titus is to declare to people, to teach people. There's things that Titus is to rebuke people of. But there's some things that we need to be reminded of in life. These are things we already know. And the first one is that we should be submissive to authority. We should be submissive to authority. It means subjecting yourself or being subordinated to someone. It's a military term used by Paul to say that you're arranged under someone's leadership. You submit to their rules. You follow their direction, their leadership. You support them. He says we should be submissive to two different groups that really mean the same thing to rulers and authorities, government systems, human authority that we have in our life. So we've looked at the book of Titus. We've seen different people, different people groups that need to submit. Wives are told to submit to their husbands. Slaves are told to submit to their masters. But all of us here are told to submit to human governments. Really, all of life is us submitting to someone and their rules in some way. Children have to be obedient to parents. Wives, as I said, must submit to husbands. Workers submit to employers. Employers submit to their bosses or boards or higher-ups that they have, their investors that maybe they have in their business. Teachers submit to their principals. Principals submit to the school board. School board submits to the people who vote for them. Everyone has different authorities in their life. Congregation members submit to church leadership. 
church leadership submits to the congregation and congregational voting. Citizens obey the town council. Americans submit to the state and federal governments. Government submits to the people's decision as they vote, and all believers submit to Christ. All of life is about submission. You know, I always think it's funny, young people that I meet that maybe are my age, probably a little bit younger than me now, that want to go into the military, and they're excited about this new military career that they're going to have, and they said, I just, I can't be under mom and dad's rules anymore. I got to get out. And I said, well, you don't know what the military is about again, because you're going to have way more rules about things you can do than whatever your parents had. All of life is about some aspect of submission to someone. And Paul tells us here to be submissive to authorities. And I'll be honest, this is not something that is easy for us to do. On more than one occasion working with kids, I've talked to parents who have children who refuse to obey them. They backtalk them. They rebel against them. There was one parent especially who was dealing with this with his children, and I found out later he was telling his children that a certain worker at the place I was working at, he said, you guys don't have to listen to her. Whenever she tells you to do something, you don't have to listen to her. Listen to someone else. Listen to Lance. Listen to one of the other workers, but you don't have to listen to her. And yet they wondered why their children failed to continually submit and obey their authority. You see, when you teach your children, when you teach those who follow you what rebellion looks like, when you teach those who follow you what it means to not submit, you should not be surprised when they don't submit to your authority, when they don't follow your leadership. All of life in some way is us being under someone's authority. All of us have authority in our lives that we look to and we must obey. But the funny thing about life is that in some level, all of us become an authority too. So you think about how you respect people in your life, your authorities. Then you think about how other people respect you as a leader as well. It's always fun to think about leadership when you're not the one having to make the decisions. You think, I would do this, or I think we should do this. And then you become a leader and you realize it's not quite as easy as you thought it was when you'd said all that. There's other things that you don't realize. Paul tells us to be submissive to rulers and authorities in our lives. But what does submission look like? Well, look at the second phrase. To be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Submission to authority is being obedient to authority. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We treat human authority like they have been put in our lives by God because they have. All of the people that we have to submit to, all the government's authority, did any of that take God by surprise? No. Did God make a mistake? No, absolutely not. You have the parents you were meant to have. You have the employer that God wanted you to have. We have the government God intended for us to have at this time. None of that took God by surprise. None of that shocked him. Do we believe God is sovereign? Yes, absolutely. 
So Paul says in Romans 13, submit to them as you're submitting to God. Well, you might ask me, what if authority is evil? And are there evil people in government? Yes. Are there people who do wrong? Yes, absolutely. There's going to be people in your life who you will be under that are not living according to the Bible, that are not living a life of morality as Scripture would entail. And God's not saying you have to vote for those people. God isn't saying you have to support them at their campaigns. But do we submit to government? Yes, absolutely. You may not agree with them. They may do things that you don't like, and you don't have to support them in that. But we can't argue that our rulers are any different than what Paul faced. In fact, they're probably a little bit better. Peter and Paul, as they write about submission in the New Testament, they submitted to men like Nero, who would kill Christians and hang them in his yard for sport. They would light them on fire. They were terrible, evil rulers in Rome. And Paul is writing this, and he says, be submissive to authorities. Now, there's a difference between submitting to an authority that might be evil and obeying an evil command. Does that make sense? So we can be under an authority that may not be living a godly life, but we don't command, we don't follow their commands that may be evil. I'm reminded of Acts 5.29 when Peter and John, they responded well to authority, but as they healed this person, the religious leaders said, you need to not preach the gospel anymore. And they said, we can't do that. They said, we would rather obey God than men. When do we stop submitting to authority? When do we stop following their rules, their commandments? It's when they've commanded us to do something that is evil. It's when they've commanded us to do something that hinders the proclamation of the gospel. It's when they've told us to do something that we cannot follow. That is when we are not to be obedient. That is when we're not to be submissive. You may not like the authority that God has put in your life, and that's okay. But God commands all of us to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Why? Why should we learn submission? Why should believers submit to government? Well, look back at verse 10 of Titus chapter 2. Speaking of bondservants and their submission to their authorities, he says, Showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. When we show submission... When we show obedience, even to people we don't like, we have a chance to display the gospel, to display sound doctrine to the world around us in different ways. Paul is saying if a slave can do this, if he can serve a master and show submission to him, he can adorn the gospel of God. And all of us, if we're submissive to authority... We can be a great testimony of the gospel to others around us. Who in your life are you to submit to? Who in your life is it difficult to follow? Is it hard? Yes. In our flesh, we want to make the rules. We want to usurp authority. We want to overtake authority to please ourselves. But we get submission wrong when we think that just because we're believers, we have a chance to not obey the rules to not follow what government has told us to do. There are times, yes, when we can't obey what maybe a law would say. But sometimes I think that's not as often as we want to say it is. 
We get submission right when we recognize that God has put these authorities in our lives for us to follow and for us to obey. We have, like I said, the employer that God wanted us to have. We have the government God has put here for this time for a reason. We have an opportunity to show the gospel to other people through our submissive attitudes here in the world. A submissive attitude. Secondly, an eager attitude. An eager attitude. Remind them to be submissive to authorities and rulers, to be obedient, then to be ready for every good work. Eager or ready, as your Bible might say, means to be prepared in advance, to be ready for something. It's a continual action. To prepare yourself ahead of time. Paul's reminding them of this. He says, remember as you live your life to be prepared for good works. Always be ready to do something good. We've said in Titus, there's sound doctrine. There are good works as well. Sound doctrine is not just what you believe, but it affects how you live. Good works are the things that we do in life that God would have us to do that are good And notice, Paul says, remind them of this. What does that mean? That means we all have things in life that we know we should do. We all have things in life that we know we should do that are good. John MacArthur refers to this as aggressive goodness. Doing something right and doing it eagerly. This was not the mindset of the people on the island of Crete. They are called in verse 16 of chapter 1. It says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. They were unable to do good, to do good works. But Paul says, remind them to be ready, to be prepared, to be fit for doing good works, for doing good things out of the kindness of their hearts. What does Paul have in mind for these believers? What are good things that he would have them do in the world around them? I can talk all day about doing good works, but what does that actually tangibly look like in the Christian life? Well, as I was thinking through this in the last couple of days, I wrote down some different examples. You could share the gospel with someone. This is obvious. You could share the gospel with someone. Who in your life does not know Christ? Who in your life is an unbeliever who needs to experience the saving power of the gospel? Is that a good thing for us to do? Yes. Are you prepared to do that? Are you eager to do that? Are you ready to share the gospel with someone in the world? We know we should do this. We know this far too often. But we fail to do this so many times. What are good things that believers could do? We could serve in our local church. How could you encourage someone in your local body of believers here? How could you get involved in what this church's mission is doing? You could serve in your community. Do your neighbors know who you are? Have they ever seen your face? I'll admit, this is hard for me. Because I live in an apartment and it's very private. It's hard to try to interact with your neighbors as you're outside. Now, luckily, my dog does a lot of that for me. And so he introduces me to people even if I'm not ready to be introduced to them. Do you serve in your community? Do people know who you are? Do you get involved? Do you volunteer? Do you give to others? Are you known for being generous? 
Are you known for your generosity to others, seeing that they have a need and out of the goodness of your heart, helping meet that need? <clears throat> Do you invite people over? Are you hospitable? I mean, to your house, yes, to your house. Do you invite them over for a meal? Do you take them out? Do you pray with others? Do you ask them for requests? Do you ask them how you can help them? Do all of your conversation that you have direct them towards the throne of God, showing them that you have a God who can answer their requests? There's so many more things that I could bring up that would qualify as good works. Paul says, be ready for this. Be eager to do this. I think about my grandpa as we would go on vacation. You know, as you're on vacation, you don't really want to think about helping other people. You kind of want to be left to yourself and make everything about you. But he would always be talking to people and he was just a really friendly guy. We'd be in the grocery store and he'd be chatting with people and asking them how they're doing and how he could pray for them and trying to share the gospel with people. And in my mind, I'm like, Grandpa, let's get out of here, you know, so we can go do what we need to do. And on one vacation, he even went to the emergency room. He had some breathing issues. And when he woke up, he's sharing the gospel with people in the hospital, people that he's never going to interact with again, people he's never going to see again. They couldn't join his church. They couldn't be part. They couldn't be his friend even, really, past that moment. But he said, this is a time where I can reach out to someone else and make an impact and share the gospel with them. And he wasn't going to waste it. And I think about my own life and how many times I have opportunities to share the gospel with people in my community and the world around me. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you eager for every good work? As John MacArthur says, are you pursuing aggressive goodness? Are you fit for every good work? Thirdly, an edifying attitude. An edifying attitude. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one. As Paul is giving instructions on Christian living, he gives us things that we should do that are good, submission to authority, being ready for every good work. But he also tells us, he says, you should make sure you don't speak evil about someone. This comes from the word blasphemy. We normally associate this word with blaspheming God or Jesus Christ, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It means to defame someone, to hurt their reputation or character, to malign someone, to be cutting towards them. And again, as people blaspheme God, this is a very serious offense. We don't take that lightly. But Paul uses it here to speak of our conversations with other people around us. Do you blaspheme others? Do you cut down on other people? It reminds me of what he says to the older women in verse 3. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, or little devils, as you might translate the word in Greek. Not cutting people down with your words. Notice he says, speak evil of no one, not just believers, not just those you like, not just those you voted for, not just those whose lifestyle matches yours, but he said, don't cut down anyone. Don't blaspheme others. Don't try to degrade them. 
Don't try to diminish their character. The Cretan people were empty talkers. They were detestable. They were liars and deceivers. They would often try to cut other people down. But Paul says, make sure that you and your speech are not blaspheming someone, are not cutting them down in a way to hurt them. What's the opposite of this? Well, I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul, as he's writing to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, he says in verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion. Instead of cutting people down, slandering people, Paul says use speech that builds other people up. That encourages them. And why does he say this? He says that it may give grace to those who hear it. That it may bless other people. That it might even share the gospel with other people around you. That you might be a good testimony towards them. You know what Paul is saying? People who cut others down. People who use hurtful speech. People who defame others. They do not represent the gospel well. They do not represent the gospel rightly. I see this all the time with kids at school, kids who don't want to be hurt by someone. Maybe they've been hurt by someone in their lives, so they cut down on other people. They say things, they say hurtful things to try to hurt someone else before they can come back and hurt them. Paul says, don't do this, but rather... Build others up. Use speech that edifies other people. When the world does this, we should not be surprised, but as believers in Jesus Christ, we should use speech that is edifying to other people. Now, there might be some people who are truly evil, who do truly do things that are not right. But Paul asks us to focus on ourselves. Is our speech gracious does it build others up or tear them down you can just look on social media today and see all sorts of speech from people that is hurtful that is detestable but as one pastor i heard said it doesn't surprise me when the world uses that speech but it does surprise me when i see the church using that speech when i see believers cutting each other down over things that really probably don't matter in light of eternity. How gracious is your speech? How do you use your speech towards others? Christ says in Matthew, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is the words that you say, say about your heart towards others? The world is going to cancel each other and threaten each other until no one has a leg left to stand on. But we as believers in Jesus Christ, are to edify one another, are to speak the truth in love. This is what sound doctrine looks like for healthy Christian living. An edifying attitude. He also says, remind them to avoid quarreling. To avoid quarreling, to be peaceful, a peaceful attitude. This is one single word in Greek, and it has both a negative and a positive connotation. The negative connotation is what I read, to avoid quarreling. 
You could also say that it is to be a person of peace. If we were to look a little bit back in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see in Paul's qualifications for elders there, he says an elder should not be a drunkard, in verse 3, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, same word. The man of God, the man who is a pastor, the man who is going to teach God's word faithfully must be a person of peace, a person who does not cause fights. He should not be violent. There's many different words or qualifications within the pastoral epistles that describe this. He says he should be not violent but gentle. Over in Titus chapter 1, we looked at these a few weeks ago. He should not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He should not be violent or pugnacious. Rather, he should be a person of peace. Pastors should strive to not live in conflict, but to live in peace with one another. But notice verse 1 does not just say pastors, but it's to the rest of us as well. That we all should be peaceful. That we all should avoid quarreling or fighting with one another. Rather, we should be people of peace. He's not just talking to pastors. He's not just talking to Titus. But he's talking to all of us as well. Now, maybe you don't get into physical fights with people. I hope that you guys aren't getting into physical fights with people. I would hope that would be true. Maybe you're not getting into verbal fights with people. But can sometimes, can we be prone to try to stir things up, to cause drama, to respond maybe when someone is hurtful towards us, to respond harshly or sharply towards them? A person who is a great example of peace was my former pastor, Pastor Scott. He had a lot of people in his life that said things to him and who tried to catch him doing something wrong and who were really just out to get him. He had a lot of issues that he dealt with as pastor of our church. But one of the things that I appreciated about him, that no matter where he was, he never responded sharply towards someone. He would speak the truth to people. He'd be honest, but he never responded back as harshly as someone would come against him. I can remember one time we were at the state fair. We were witnessing and giving information about our church. And a local church in town had told all the people coming by their station to not go by our booth because we didn't preach that baptism saves you. And so they said we were sending people to hell. And my pastor calmly and graciously went and confronted the man about this. And I was so impressed with just his peace that he showed. How even though he had a right to stand for the gospel, and he did stand on the truth of God's word, what the Bible says about salvation, how baptism does not save you. And he explained his position on that to this pastor. But how he did this in love as well. How he wasn't trying to be argumentative. How he didn't try to escalate things with him. And how he didn't use the same shameful tactics that that pastor was using against him. There's so many more stories I could tell. He was a man of peace. It's hard to be peaceful when people attack you. It's hard to be peaceful when people 
try to catch you off guard or try to say things against you to get into your head. But friends, we are called to not be quarrelsome. Do you cause conflict or do you resolve conflict in your actions? Are you someone that is stirring up trouble all the time or are you resolving trouble for other people? Believers should not be known for their fighting or divisiveness, but unfortunately, this happens far too often. I talk to people that I meet and they tell me about church splits that happen, church breakups, ugly issues that they had with pastors, fights in churches over the carpet or over whether or not they should have chairs or pews or over what hymns they sing, over what type of kids program they have, things that might be significant at that moment, but that are not significant in comparison to the gospel. Christians should be known for being people of peace, but far too often the church can be known for their fighting and divisiveness, for getting involved in church politics. I'm thankful I don't believe that's our church. I pray that never is our church, but that we'd be unified around the gospel, people of peace. Paul is saying when we do this, when we avoid fighting, we give the gospel a good name towards those around us. We represent Christ well. Now let me just say this, that the gospel will be offensive to people. In Matthew chapter 10, as we read in Young Adult Bible Study, the gospel will be divisive. It will turn people against each other, even within their own families. That does not mean that we stir up fighting or trouble. We preach the gospel and we preach it being unashamed. But we don't purposely try to cause fights or quarrels with others. Are you a person of peace? Fifthly, a gentle attitude. A gentle attitude. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Most of us, when we think about gentleness, we think about someone who's soft-spoken, not intimidating, someone who's kind. Mr. Rogers comes to mind for me. Maybe you have a different person that comes to mind for you. Here it means to be tolerant, not insisting on your own way, being kind to those who are around you. As we see this word used in the New Testament, there's a special emphasis on being tolerant, especially in situations that would not be easy in the midst of mistreatments. It's often said of the apostles that they were gentle, even as others were speaking harsh words against them. You see, it's easy in life to be gentle when everything's calm, when life is easy, when people are nice to you. It's hard in life to be gentle when the circumstances are tough, when life is in chaos, when people are trying to agitate you. It is hard at that moment to be gentle. It is hard at that moment to be thoughtful, to not seek your own way. Paul, though, reminds us to be gentle towards others. Paul made a practice of this. He stood firm on the gospel, but he dealt with other people around him who did not know Christ. He was known for being gentle. Our culture would like to call itself gentle. They would like to call itself tolerance. But the tolerance they preach, the acceptance that they preach, 
is really not tolerance at all. You see, being gentle does not mean that you're going to accept every new trend or every new movement that comes up. You're not going to accept every new lifestyle change that maybe someone is going to make. You're going to stand for the truth, but it means we're going to be loving towards those people. There's plenty of examples I could bring up of times when you need to be gentle towards someone. There are plenty of examples from just my own life where I've had to think about that. It doesn't mean that we're neglecting the gospel. It doesn't mean that we're not standing on truth. Rather, as we explain where we are on different things, people should know that we love them. Could someone talk to us with a different lifestyle, with a different lifestyle change maybe that they've made, and know that we don't agree with them, but know that we still love them and care for them? And I hope the answer is yes. How can you be gentle towards other ones? Gentleness is different than acceptance. I can be gentle towards an atheist, but I don't have to accept his philosophy about who God is. I can be gentle towards people with an alternative lifestyle without supporting the lifestyle that they are living. I can be gentle towards someone who opposes the sanctity of life without opposing the sanctity of life. And this is what culture doesn't understand. How can we be gentle towards those around us? Would you show them that you care for them? And how, in the words you say, in your posture towards them, is it evident that you do truly love that person? Not seeking your own way, not trying to win an argument or prove your points, but showing them, this is what I believe about your life, but I love you still. I'm going to continue to preach the gospel to you. Do people know that you care about them? Do you avoid hateful speech? Do you avoid calling them names, picking on them? Does your reputation show other people that you are known for being gentle? Lastly, a humble attitude. A humble attitude. He says, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This word means consideration. It can mean humbleness. It's treating other people as more important than yourself. Thinking of others' needs before your own. C.S. Lewis, again, says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's not just having a low view of yourself, but it's thinking of others' needs before your own. You have a humble attitude towards other people. You consider their needs more than yourself. As I think about a humble attitude, I think of Philippians 2. And I think of Christ's attitude towards us. How he took on flesh and how he considered him ourself, he considered us more important than himself. He was God and he took on human flesh, the form of a servant, so that we could have a relationship with him. Do you value other people around you? Do you consider their needs before your own? Think about it in your life. How many times when you wake up, we all make thousands of decisions every day that we don't even think about. How many of those decisions are focused on 
ourselves, things we need to do, things we want to do for ourselves, decisions that benefit us, decisions that are self-seeking. And how many decisions do we make that are focused on others, someone else in life that we need to help, someone else that we need to consider, someone else that we could encourage that day? Think about how we spend our time. How much of your time and your free time do you spend trying to relax, trying to enjoy yourself? How much of your time do you spend helping someone else, considering their greatest need? Friends, this is humility. Humility is not just thinking of yourself lowly. It's not just thinking of yourself in a non-positive way, but rather it's thinking of others' needs before your own. Some of the most humble people in my life that I've met have been people who just never talk about themselves, but they're always focused on what I need, what my needs are, what's going on in my life. How much of your conversation with people is focused on things happening to you, focused on things going on in your life? How much better would it be if we were focused on other people, things happening to them, asking how they are doing, how you can encourage them? This is true humility. This is true consideration for others. And Paul, as he talks about all six of these attitudes, he doesn't say to Titus that we should teach these things. He doesn't say that you should instruct them in something new. But rather, these are things that we all already know. None of us had to be told today that we needed to be submissive to authority. We all already had a pretty good idea that we needed to do that. None of us today needed to be told that we should be ready and eager to do good works. We all knew that we needed to do that. And on down the list you could go. But rather, he tells Titus, he says, remind them of these things. Remind them how to be submissive. Remind them how to do good works and to be ready and prepared for those things. Remind them how to be edifying to others. To not use hateful speech and tear people down. Remind them to be peaceful. Remind them to be gentle. Remind them to consider others before ourselves. Why does he say those things? Because in our hearts... And in our flesh, we are so often tempted to not be those attitudes. We know we should be humble. We know we should think of others first. But we're so often tempted to just think of ourselves. We know we should be peaceful. But we just want to make that one comment. Have you ever felt that way? That that one comment that would just win the argument. That one comment that would just prove that you were right. Paul says, remind them of these things and continually remind them of these things over and over again. Meaning this, we have to daily tell ourselves to be submissive, to be humble, to be gracious with others, to be gentle. Because it is not something we are going to want to do on our own. So as we consider this text this morning, how do you interact with authority? People that God has put in your life over you. How do you interact with authority? Are you known for being submissive? Are you known for being obedient, even to those you don't agree with? What do people in the world think of you? 
if someone were to speak of you, how would they describe your behavior? What do people in the world think of our church, their interactions with the people who go here? How can you faithfully serve Christ during your time on earth? This time is temporary. Norma Jean was reading us a poem the other day in, young, in Thursday Bible study about the dash and how there's the beginning of life that's on a gravestone and the end of life, but what's in the dash is what matters. We know that the dash is not all there is, that we look forward to being in eternity one day, united with Christ in heaven, that we're not made to live in this world, so things are going to be difficult for us. But as we live here on the earth in that dash, what attitude do you have towards others? How do people in the world remember you? How did you represent Christ well, even here on earth? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this text and these two verses. I pray that you would help us to think on these attitudes. Father, I pray that you would help us to be reminded of these things each and every day. Pray that you would help us to depend on you and your strength. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.